0: Let's pray again and look at the Scriptures. Father, we depend on you to simply open the eyes of our heart to see the things you mean us to this morning from your Word. And Lord, whatever we're bringing with us, uh, whatever our challenges, our joys are this morning, uh, would you help us to see you more clearly and to love you more dearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Hopefully you've got a study sheet you can follow along as we start here Psalm 2 is called a Messianic Psalm, and all that means in the Psalms is that it's one of the songs that speaks specifically about the Messiah, and specifically we know today about Jesus Christ. So all the Messianic Psalms had something to say about the Messiah, and that means basically God's anointed chosen king for Israel. And Psalm 2 is one of the best known of the Messianic Psalms. So let me read you just the couple of the first verses there. Why do the nations rebel and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let us tear off their chains and free ourselves from their restraints. Now this was the voice of man on earth to God in heaven. And it's the raised, clenched fist... And man on earth is saying to God in heaven, God, we reject your rule. We reject your king. We are going to have it our way. We're throwing off the shackles, the chains that are represented by you ruling over us. We're not going to have it. So earth speaks to heaven and says, you're not the one we want. So if earth speaks to heaven, it's appropriate that heaven responds to earth. And God does there in verse 12. And God says among other things there, he says, well, pay homage to the son or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion. Heaven speaks back to man, man shaking his fist at God. Heaven says, be careful because if you oppose my son, my chosen king, you'll perish in your rebellion. Now on the first part of this psalm, the early church quoted this in a prayer in Acts 4. They knew Psalm 2 referred to Jesus. And it referred specifically originally in the incarnation, it referred to Jesus' rejection because the nations in the nation of Rome and Pontius Pilate and the Jewish people conspired together and they crucified the Lord of glory, heaven's Messiah. But the early church knew that wouldn't be the final say. That was man's initial response. God, of course, was using that. But there will be more to the story from Psalm 2, we know. And we'll look at this again near the end of our time this morning. But this thought about uh, heaven has a king. God's chosen a king to rule this earth. And our future, either our destruction or our happiness, is tied to whether we accept heaven's choice as our king or we reject heaven's choice of our king. And Paul knew that, and he takes up that same theme in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, which is where we're going to be parked again this morning. The last time we were in this chapter, we talked about the fact that God was perfect in everything He did. And so it didn't matter if you were looking at God's acts in mercy and grace on one hand, or if you were looking at God in His acts of righteous judgment on the other. Either direction... God got it absolutely right. This morning we're going to look at God's perfection in righteousness related to his judgment. What 2 Thessalonians 1 has to say about God's coming judgment. And a disclaimer here on the front end. This these passages we're in in 2 Thessalonians they touch on huge huge involved themes. And we're not going to we're not going to take enough time to sort of develop these widely at all. We'll we'll keep a pretty narrow focus this morning on the judgment issue. Next week we'll have a pretty narrow focus out of the same text on the reward issue. So there's a whole lot to say about these themes that we won't get to this morning. Themes that include when I die, what happens? And also what does the future look like? The things that Paul's going to be talking about. When does it happen and what does that look like? I would commend to you a teaching Bill Bider did. I think it was on July 29th. You can listen to that online. I believe it's called What Happens When I Die, and it touches more fully on that that theme, I die and sort of what's next. And then also Bill's Sunday school session that started this morning has to do with eschatology or future things, prophetic issues that haven't yet taken place. So on both counts, Bill is filling in a lot of information that we just won't cover in our study in 2 Thessalonians, and this morning especially focusing very narrowly just on the issue of judgment. We'll look at verses 5 through 12 in 2 Thessalonians 1. I'm going to read from the Holman Christian Standard Bible, and that's the one that you've got on a study sheet if you happen to have one. 2 Thess 1, 5 through 12, and Paul is following up the fact that the believers being persecuted in Thessalonica nevertheless were bearing those fruits of faith, hope, and love in that affliction and persecution. And related to that, he says, it is a clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you also are suffering since it is righteous for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to reward with rest you who are afflicted along with us. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels, taking vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength in that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be admired by all those who have believed. Because our testimony among you was believed. And in view of this, we always pray for you that our God will consider you worthy of his calling and will, by his power, fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified by you and you by him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, related to the judgment theme that this touches on this morning, we'll look at this from two vantage points. The first is God's righteous judgment that accompanies Jesus' return to the earth on those who are alive at his coming. So the first phase, what does God's judgment look like on those who are alive and oppose him at his second coming? And the second phase of that judgment is, what about all the the folks who have died and aren't living on the earth when Jesus comes? What does God's judgment there look like? So related to the first, God's judgment, His righteous judgment on those living at Jesus' second coming. And you can see Paul touching on that there at verses 6 and 8. Verse 6, he says, God will repay with affliction those who afflicted His followers. And verse 8, he says, He will take vengeance with flaming fire. Uh, By the way, this 2 Thessalonians 1, it's sort of one of the most vivid uh, graphic passages in the New Testament that talk about Christ coming and His judgment. I mean, you just don't see a lot of this language in other portions of the Bible, very, very graphic. When Paul says vengeance, this means to avenge a wrong or to set things right. And it also has to do with a complete or appropriate or full punishment on those who've done wrong. So that when Jesus returns, he's taking vengeance, appropriate full punishment on wrongdoers in this fiery or flaming fire appearance. Now, Revelation 19, verses 19 through 21 is probably not on your study sheet, but let me speak to that real briefly. Revelation 19 shows Jesus coming from heaven back to earth. I mean, it's, the, it's one of the clearest passages in the Bible. Zechariah 14 would be tied to this. But it's a picture of Jesus on a horse, on his robe with his robe. He's the king of all kings, and he's returning from heaven to the earth to the Mount of Olives, to Jerusalem. And he's leading the hosts of heaven with him. Now, just like in Psalm 2, the armies of the earth know Jesus is coming. And the armies of the earth have assembled at Jerusalem, not only to destroy Jerusalem and God's people there, but to oppose heaven's choice of king. And so in Revelation 19, it says... When Jesus returns to Jerusalem, as He promised He would, there will be an opposing army there. And He makes short work of them because it just says with the breath or the sword of His mouth, He slays them all in the moment of His coming. The armies of the world and whatever our technology is there and whatever our neutron bombs or anything else, whatever we have, it makes no difference. So Jesus comes and to those who are forcefully opposing him as an army, as an opposing force, they're simply slain at his coming. There's no fight there. They're just slain by his coming. And that's it. So related to that vengeance, to those who oppose him as part of the armies of the earth, they're slain at his coming and that's that. There's no more work for him than that. Later, some people think weeks later probably. You can imagine... um, This isn't like a dream where, you know, you go from one sequence and sort of out of some kind of real chronological time sequence, you see another scene. You know, when Jesus comes back, it's real time, it's real events. It'll be just as real as his incarnation. And day will follow day and week will follow week. And it's thought that probably within a period of a few weeks, the scene that you read of in Matthew 25 will be occurring that Jesus will be gathering those left from the nations to Jerusalem, to his throne. And remember that preceding his coming, there's going to have been great trials and, and terrible judgments, and many, many people on the earth will already have died. But the nations will be gathered, and that's what Matthew 25 talks about, to come before Jesus' throne in Jerusalem and to be judged. And this is the famous sheep and goats passage. Most people have heard of this even if they've not read the text. But this is where the nations gathered before King Jesus, heaven's king on his throne in Jerusalem. And he says he separates the sheep from the goats. These are people. These aren't animals. They're just characterized as sheep or goats. He puts the sheep on his right. And he says to them, Come, beloved, come blessed into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. They're going to enter Jesus' millennial kingdom of blessing on the earth. And this is a time that the Old Testament prophets talked about. You know, when you read passages in Isaiah like uh, their uh, swords will be turned into plowshares. This is that time. Or you can play by the den of the cobra and you won't be hurt. This is that time. And so to the sheep, to those among the nations, Jesus says, you're my sheep. They're going to enter this thousand year of blessing where Jesus is ruling on the earth. But there's this other side, his left side, and those are the goats. To the goats, Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And in fact, he says, uh, into the eternal punishment, verse 46, but the righteous will go into eternal life. Now, the distinguishing mark in Matthew 25, and this is a little odd, and theologically you've got to put this in perspective. Jesus says to the sheep, you're blessed because you fed me, you clothed me, you visited me in prison. And to those on his left, the goats, who he says may not enter his kingdom but are judged on the spot, he says, You didn't feed me, you didn't clothe me, you didn't visit me in prison. This almost sounds like a work salvation. It's really not. It's really tied to how did the nations treat the king's representatives? How did the nations treat Jesus, heaven's Messiah? How did they treat his representatives? the way they treated his representatives was an indication of their attitude towards him. So those who took care of Jesus' people during these terrible, tumultuous times, he says, you're my sheep, you've honored my representatives, you've honored me, you're into my kingdom. But those on the left, he says, you're the goats, you dishonored me when you saw my representatives, you may not enter into my kingdom. So short-term, related to the second coming itself, You get Jesus bringing death to the armies of the world that oppose him at his coming. And you also have this this judgment scene in Jerusalem where Jesus sits on a throne and he divvies up the nation. And it's those who may enter his kingdom of blessing and those who may not. They apparently die there in that judgment. He says here also that this coming is in flaming fire. Uh. This is really graphic. I don't know what this would look like as Jesus descends, but it says flaming fire. You know, fire is a imagery used of God fairly routinely in the Bible. And to say Jesus returns in flaming fire probably is meant to give some indication again that this is deity. This isn't just a man or or a super superman. No, this is God himself represented by fire. So... You remember when Moses meets God, he sees a fire, a flame in a bush that doesn't burn up. God's represented by a fire. Later, when Moses goes to Mount Sinai, God appears as a flame of fire on the mountain there. And also, at the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost, the presence of the Holy Spirit is seen as a flame of fire above each of the disciples' heads. So Fire is a picture of deity and of God, and it says Jesus' return has this flaming fire imagery of God through both testaments. But it's also true that fire uh, reveals the quality of something. In fact, there was a verse in the song we just sang. uh, I can't remember the words, but to that effect, that, you know, if you put wood to fire, it burns up because wood is ultimately insubstantial. But if you put fire to a precious metal, it doesn't hurt it. You know, it might purify it a little bit more, but the precious metal is never hurt by the fire. And so Jesus' return in flaming fire also has the sense of it proves the worth, if you will, of the people he's meeting at his return. That his coming is like an oven, Malachi 4 says. And Malachi 4 says that the wicked are like Double in the furnace of God, that He comes in this fiery furnace. Isaiah 66, last chapter in Isaiah, the Prince of the Prophets talking about Jesus' return and that He would restore His throne at Jerusalem, says this, Then the Lord's power will be revealed to His servants, but He will show His wrath against His enemies. Look, the Lord will come with fire. His chariots are like the whirlwind, to execute His anger with fury and His rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment on all flesh with His fiery sword, and many will be slain by the Lord. Exactly the same imagery and language of Paul in Second Thessalonians and John the Apostle in Revelation 19, that He returns in flaming fire. Last verse along that line is Revelation 19.11. It just says that Jesus... Eyes are like a fiery flame. So for those alive on the earth, when heaven's Messiah returns, there's going to be judgment on those who've opposed Him. And if you're in the army that's around Jerusalem opposing Him, you'll simply be slain at His appearing. There's not a battle then. It just says the sword of His mouth goes out and they're simply slain in the moment. But in the subsequent weeks, he'll set up his throne geographically in Jerusalem. He'll gather the nations to himself, and he'll judge them. And some will enter his blessed kingdom, and the rest will not. Out of Matthew 25. Luke 16, too. I just want to touch on this uh, very, very briefly. Luke 16 paints a picture of those who die... And are not saved. And it's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And in that story, Jesus says that the unsaved man at his death, he went to a place of fiery torment. And it wasn't hell. It's not his final destination. And we'll see that in just a moment in Revelation 20. But he went to a place that was like a holding tank. You know, if you're in the judicial process here, if you've already been found guilty, you would spend your time in a cell someplace, but you might be awaiting your final sentencing where the judge says, this is your sentence. But you're still incarcerated before that. Well, this picture in Luke 16 is, for the unsaved at death, they go to a place of torment, but it's a temporary holding tank. And they'll be resurrected with the rest of the dead of all the ages. Again, in just a moment, we'll see this in Revelation 20, to stand before Christ at their final sentencing, as it were. So all the dead of all the ages will have been in the same sort of holding tank before they face Jesus at the great white throne judgment. You can see that Paul references here at verse 9, here in 2 Thessalonians. He says, those who are under God's judgment pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence or away from the Lord's presence. So what does that mean and what does that look like? Eternal destruction from the Lord's presence. Remember, if the text is on your study sheet for this or not, you might want to turn to your Bible, Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, if you don't have that otherwise in front of you. This is at the consummation of the age, and the earth earth age is over. The, The earth as we know it is done. And there's another judgment that God has set up when heaven's king judges the dead of all the ages. You can see this starting at verse 11. John the Apostle said, I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up its dead, and death and Hades gave up their dead. All were judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So John tells us at that last day of judgment, the great and the small, the famous and the obscure, those who died and were buried in the dirt, in the earth, those whose bodies sank in the sea, they all, the unsaved of all the ages, faced Jesus at what's called this great white throne, Judgment. If you look at verse 12 there, there's two important points John makes. He says, books were opened and the dead were judged according to their works. Books were opened and the dead were judged according to their works. It's assumed generally that the books represents the deeds of the individual's life. That is, what did you do in life? Because it's at this great white throne that Jesus gives, as it were, his Final sentence. There's no thought that anyone who stands before him at this throne is saved. It's the dead, the spiritually dead. But the degree of their punishment in hell, as odd as that sounds, how can one stage of hell be worse than another? I don't know. But they will be. There will be distinguishing marks there. The books will be opened and the quality or the deeds of each person's life will be seen. And Jesus will determine how severe or how less severe their punishment in hell will be. You can see references to this same thought in Luke 12, verses 46 through 48. mentions the same thing. Matthew 11, verses 23 and 24. And also later in Matthew, chapter 23, verses 13 and 14. uh, Talk about these degrees of affliction or these degrees, varying levels of suffering in hell, that the crime, the punishment will fit the crime. You can imagine if you and I both stood before Jesus' judgment seat, and I'm, let's say, Hitler or Stalin, and I've brought about directly the death of millions and millions of people, or someone else standing next to him as someone who's lived, as far as external qualities go, a relatively moral life and sort of done things as right as they understood it, we would generally say it would be unfair for them to be treated the same way, though they are both in the same place. And that's what's reflected at this judgment, that Jesus will deal out punishment that's absolutely appropriate to each person's level of accountability and responsibility for the deeds of their life in hell. So that's what this judgment will determine, not where they're going because they're all spiritually dead. So it's the degree of punishment It also says there in verse 12 that the book of life is brought out also. And I think the image is this. It's as if God would turn the book of life to them and show them that their name is not there. They aren't among the living. They aren't among those who are going into God's eternal kingdom. Their name is not there. So they're judged for their acts on the earth and their name is not recorded in the book of life. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote lots of books. Christians are well familiar with his works today. One of his books that our family liked the best was called The Great Divorce. And when that story starts, Lewis pictures hell as this really dreary, rainy, gray city. Gray, dreary, rainy city. Uh, There are many people today, if you talk to about the concept of hell... Hell in their minds is the place where the party goes on forever. Have you guys talked to anybody like this? In hell, I'll party with my friends forever. It'll be great. It won't be, and it won't be a party. Uh, To a gentleman I worked with many years ago, talking about this very thing, salvation, the big picture, heaven and hell, Uh, hell would be a place that he would uh, quietly, patiently, stolidly endure just like he had his tours of duty in Vietnam. He said, I'll just get through it. You know, just like I got through Vietnam, I'll just get through it. And I'm thinking, you know, it won't be like it, and you won't just get through it, you know. It won't be like that. Uh, Dante, in his Inferno, much closer to the biblical mark. In Dante's version of Hell and the Inferno, there are nine concentric circles And as you move from the outer to the inner, the suffering gets worse in each circle. And above the entryway, as it were, to hell, in Dante's version, it says famously, this is a quote you may have heard, Abandon all hope, all you who enter here. That's a pretty graphic, though fictional, account of what hell will be like. Abandon all hope, you who enter here. There is no hope. And there are varying degrees of punishment to fit the deeds that each person did during their life. So uh, this is not a happy thought, a hell. You know, I confess in this, uh, because of just the study for this text and this in general, uh, the whole deal with hell, it makes you more serious than about anything else you can read in the Bible. And it's one of the greatest motivators to take God and Christ seriously and also just our responsibility to share the hope of the gospel we have with others, this reality of hell. You know, again, because as Christians, a lot of us want to pretend like maybe hell won't really be what we think it is. Maybe it really won't be what the Bible makes it sound like, but it'll it'll be all of that. You know, there's just no chance. If the Bible is true, if words have meaning, God's absolutely consistent in His depiction of His judgment on those who refuse his salvation and who refuse his offer of pardon to the, his great king. So this judgment is called in Revelation 20, the second death. You know, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that all of us are spiritually dead. Before regeneration, we're spiritually dead. And remember that in the Bible, death is separation. So if I die physically, my body is separated from my soul or my spirit. We are born at odds with God. We are born spiritually dead, the best of us. All our children that we love dearly, they're born spiritually separated from God and therefore spiritually dead. That's the first death spiritually. It's how we come into this world. And it's how we leave this world unless there's a point of regeneration. Regeneration. But at this great white throne judgment, God calls it the second death. Because now God stamps His final direction on each person's life who chose death. I've I've been born separated from God. I'm spiritually dead now. And that's the way I want to keep it. God stamps that on that person. And it's called the second death. So it's separation from God. You know, John 17, 3, Jesus told his disciples, this is life. This is life to the ages. It's that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ. Spiritual life is to know God. It's to be in relationship with him. Spiritual death is to not know God and not to be in relationship with him. And so at this great white throne judgment, the second death is the eternal separation of the person from God who in himself is life. The second death, separation from God. Like Dante, it will be hopeless because it won't matter if you've been in hell a day or a thousand days or a thousand years, it will never end. It will never change. That's that's all that there will be. It'll start that way and it'll go on endlessly that same way. We'll look at that here further in just a moment. It's not only called a second death, but it's a second death in the lake of fire second death would be bad enough. Lake of fire sort of an exclamation point on that. Back in Matthew 25, verse 41, Jesus there said, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. You remember Satan rebelled against God. Satan is the first rebel. And to those who choose through their lifetimes, to give their allegiance to that same rebel, they will share that same rebel's end, his final judgment. Jesus makes it clear in Matthew 25, hell was not created for humans. It was created for Satan and his followers, his angelic followers. But we as humans, if we choose to maintain our position in his rebel camp, we will share his end. In the lake of fire, Jesus said, made for Satan, and his angels. Revelation 19.20 uh, talks about uh, the what we would call the Antichrist. The beast was taken prisoner, the Antichrist, along with him, the false prophet, his version of John the Baptist, who performed signs in his presence. And it says there, both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Uh, this picture of the second death or hell as a lake of fire and sulfur, this isn't some... Comedic preacher's version of hell that was developed 150 years ago. This is just the language of the Bible. A lake that burns, that smells like sulfur. And last, Revelation 20, verse 10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, tormented day and night forever and ever. Those aren't my words. Those aren't somebody's made up years ago. Those are God's words. And we can no more reject them than we can reject John 3.16, God loved us and sent Jesus to die for our sins. Listen to Leon Morris' comment on this same thought, this eternal destruction. He says it's the opposite of eternal life. It's the end of all that is worthwhile in life. As eternal life can be defined in terms of the knowledge of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, he references John 17.3, So the eternal destruction that is here in mind is from or away from the presence of the Lord. It indicates that separation from the Lord, which is, and His word is really helpful, which is the final disaster. That this phrase, eternal destruction, second death in the lake of fire, is the final disaster. There was a book that came out last year that suggested that there would not be any eternal destruction for those who reject heaven's king uh, that somehow it would all turn out well in the end. And the subject of hell is so uh, challenging to our minds, the thought that any one of us would not only be isolated from God and anything that we could call good, but isolated in a lake of fire, this painful place that you would simply endure, be forever, it's so hard to hold on to that we want to reject it. There's just a natural abhorrence to the thought of this eternal punishment in hell. And so thoughts have come up along the years. One of them is called annihilationism, and it's the thought that the unsaved really won't endure hell forever under god's judgment they'll simply be annihilated and so they'll tell you that's what destroyed me. And the trouble with that is it just doesn't wash biblically so the same greek term eternal destruction is used of eternal life does eternal life end for us it's in the greek it's life to the ages life throughout the ages well that's the same thought here it's destruction throughout the ages. You can't get the thought biblically that the punishment in hell ever ends. There's just no warrant for it in the Scripture. It's a difficult, difficult concept for us, and I get that, but we can't, we can't get to some form of annihilationism or universalism where we say somehow God baptizes everyone at the last moment and says, no, you're really okay. There's a great white throne judgment coming. And it says all the dead of all the ages are going to be there. We want to make sure we're not in that group. So who is in that group? Who's who's represented by the goats in Matthew 25? And who are the dead that you see here in Revelation 20? If you look at verse 6 and verse 8 here in our text in 2 Thessalonians, verse 6 says it's righteous for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you those who afflict God's people, His messengers. And also at verse 8, it says that God will take vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So Paul says, those before this throne were enemies of Jesus, evidenced by their persecution of His followers. That's one thing. And they refuse to obey God's command to repent of their rebellion and embrace Jesus as their Savior and King. I don't know if you guys are are like me, if you entertain the same mindset at times or not. Sometimes when I think of the gospel and sharing the gospel with others, I I want to convince people that God will give them a nice life if they come to Christ. That it will be a happy life. Their life will be better. And you know, frankly, when I came to Christ at 19 years old, uh, it was the four spiritual laws. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And it sounds a little hokey. It's true. But when we present the gospel to others or when we entertain a version of the gospel in our mind that salvation is just an invitation to a happy life, we've really capitulated. We've lost this huge side that God wants us to be aware of, and He wants other people to be aware of. The gospel is not just an invitation to people for a happier life. It is that. But it's much more than that, because the gospel is also, in fact, heaven's command to the earth to lay down our arms, to put away our rebellion, and accept heaven's pardon and heaven's king. The gospel is a divine command from heaven to all on the earth to forsake our fist-in-the-air rebellion from Psalm 2 and say, Lord, we'll do it our way. Paul says this much in Acts 17.30. He's speaking to the intellectuals of his day, Mars Hill there in Athens, and he says, God having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people This is heaven's response to earth. This is heaven's response to earth's raised fist. God commands all people everywhere to repent. The gospel is not just an invitation, it's a command. Everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. That's Matthew 25 and that's Revelation 20. And that's the bad news of the good news message Paul was preaching to the Greeks. God, heaven, commands men on the earth to give up their rebellion and repent and accept heaven's king. He's not just the Savior, he's all of that. But he's more than a Savior, he's a king also. Or as well. So the gospel is more than an invitation, it's a command. We have it pretty good in the States. Life's fairly easy most of the time for most of us physically. I know we work hard. I don't mean that. But materially, we have lots of stuff. We have good health care. We have lots to be thankful for. And it can be easy to forget that we actually are born into the midst of a great war. We're not given our existence on earth to just have a nice life, you know, good appliances and raise good-looking kids who are more successful than us. You know, if our version of life is limited to life on this earth, Paul says, we're fools. We're fools. So life is a lot bigger than simply a nice, happy lifestyle. We're born into the midst of a great war. It's the war of heaven against earth. And it's the war of Satan and his followers against heaven and heaven's king. And we choose sides. And when we choose to accept the message of the gospel, we are submitting to heaven and heaven's king. And we're saying, King Jesus, we're on your side. And we gladly accept your pardon. And when we refuse the gospel, we are refusing heaven's command to the earth to lay down our arms and accept heaven's choice of king. So we have to get over in our own minds this picture that Life, we're simply called to have a nice life here for 70 or 80 or 90 years and call it good and go be with Jesus on clouds in heaven someplace doing something. We're in a great war. And life is on the line. Eternal life and eternal death is on the line. And we need to get our heads in the game. To refuse the divine command to submit to heaven's king is to choose to remain God's enemy and to invite his judgment. C.S. Lewis also famously said this about hell. He said, There are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, Thy will be done. Guys, that's the wise thing to say. That's those on earth saying to heaven and heaven's king, I submit, I lay down my arms, I accept heaven's pardon. I choose heaven's side and heaven's king. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. I stamp your choice. He concludes, all that are in hell, choose it. All that are in hell, choose it. Those in hell are those who refuse the offer of pardon. They refuse the command to be reconciled with heaven and heaven's king. Let me hurry through the end of this. Second Thessalonians, I think this is on your study sheet, says, chapter 2, verse 10, it describes more fully those who are going to be in hell. It says they don't accept the love of the truth. They believe what was false. They didn't believe the truth and they enjoyed unrighteousness. You can see how vital truth is. Truth, truth determines if we're in heaven or hell. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. To know truth is to know Jesus. And this says, three times related to truth, they rejected truth, and rather they took pleasure in unrighteousness. Many people are simply drowning out the pain or the reality of a future and a heaven and hell through enjoyment, through pleasure, some of which are absolutely legitimate. But it's just a way of avoiding the reality that we don't want to face, that we're accountable to God, and that we'll give account one day for our life. Revelation 21.8 also lasts on this part. This gives a list of those who are in hell and it says the cowards, the unbelievers, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, if you're like me, when I read this list, I can tick some of those off. Some of those are my sins, my sins of the past. And you know what comforts me is Paul has a list very similar to this one in 1 Corinthians 6. And in that very similar list, he says to the Christians in Corinth, he says, some of you were just like this. But then he says, you were washed. You were made holy. You were made righteous through Jesus' offering on your behalf. When you go through a list of works like this, immorality, lying, whatever it is, It's not that we who go to heaven, it's not that we haven't sinned along these same lines. All of us sin. That's not the issue. Jesus has paid for sins if we'll accept the payment. But if we don't, all we carry to that great white throne judgment are the deeds we've done in the body. And then John says that's what was characteristic of those in hell. That's what they lived like. And there was no pardon. They accepted no payment on their behalf for their sins. Well, Psalm 2 winds down uh, by calling earth to repent of rebellion and accept heaven's king, heaven's Messiah. It's a great warning. It uh, stands as true today as it did then. If we reject the great costly offer of pardon God has provided for us, what can we expect except His judgment? Now, remember for us and... Bob's going to lead us in the Lord's Supper here in a bit during our worship time. Uh, God, at His price, this was His cost, the second member of the Trinity leaves heaven in heaven's glory. He humbles Himself in our humanity. He goes further. He becomes a servant. He goes further down yet. He becomes a criminal, killed on a cross by the Romans, the lowest form of punishment you could have, to pay the penalty you and I have incurred on this earth for our rebellion and every act of rebellion or sin that we've committed. God has gone to really, really great lengths to offer us pardon and forgiveness. So if we reject that pardon, that offer of pardon, and that forgiveness, how can we, why would we expect anything but God's perfect, full, righteous judgment on us? He didn't spare His Son to offer us pardon. How will He not judge us if we reject the pardon offered through His Son? In fact, in Hebrews 2, verse 3, it says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So this is the end of Psalm 2. Kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe. Rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son of God or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion, for his anger may ignite at any moment. But all those who take refuge in him are happy. Earth shakes its fist at heaven, and heaven replies and says, Well, I've already already chosen my king, and I've set him here. And if you're wise, with reverence and awe, you'll submit to heaven's choice of king. We will bow and will accept heaven's pardon. And when we do, here it says, we will be happy. We will be blessed. We will enjoy Jesus' eternal kingdom, where there's pleasures and joy forevermore. But if we refuse that offer of pardon, the command of heaven to earth to repent and lay down our arms in our rebellion, there's only the certainty of a future fiery judgment. There's nothing else for us. Biblically, you can go no place else. There is a real, there is a terrifying, there is an eternal hell to be avoided. And we need to take that seriously as believers for the sake of the folks we interact with day by day and sharing the hope of the gospel we have. It's not just hope for a happy life. It's hope for deliverance from the punishment that is going to be fall in full force and fury from God on Satan and his followers. Let's pray. Father, uh, reality not only is always stranger than fiction, Lord, it's uh, more compelling. Lord, there is a heaven to be gained. There is a hell to be avoided. And God, as followers of you, help us to take that really seriously. Help us not to sugarcoat that or try and change it in our minds. So that we sleep better, Lord, let the truth of Your Word let it jar us, let it mold our thinking, let it affect the way we see You and the way we interact with others. Lord Jesus, help us also not to be apologetic for Your future judgments; that You do judgment absolutely well and perfectly. And though, Lord, it is hard for our minds to get wrapped around this, uh, help us to humbly bow to You and to Your Word. And, Lord, would you help us with with joy and with conviction and with hope share this gospel, this command to repent and accept heaven's king, this offer of eternal blessing and deliverance from eternal wrath. Would you help us to communicate this clearly to those around us as well, just as Paul did and the early church did. And, Lord Jesus, we, we simply thank you for taking in Your person the wrath that was due us for our rebellion and sin. And we just thank You for the eternal life You've given us. Amen.